This is Floyd Hughes, pastor of Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. I just wanted to share about my new book, Act Like an E-Christian. The E stands for evangelical. And despite what you may have heard, evangelical Christianity has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with the reason the body of Christ exists, sharing the gospel. My book, a devotional based on the book of Acts, prayerfully encourages Christ followers to return to our evangelical roots of sharing the gospel with folks in our circles of influence. It's available on Amazon in paperback and for Kindle, and you can pick up a copy today. Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing and showing the love of Christ and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now, here is this week's message from Pastor Floyd Hughes. Uh, before, before we continue, I want to share a conversation that I had with someone online. Um, and it's a good thing, not a bad thing. But uh, there are lots of people that always ask this question. And it, 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 this is, I didn't come up with this. Someone else did, and I thought this was great. They always ask this question. If God is real, why is there so much evil in the world, right? If God is this good God who loves everyone, why is there so much evil? Why is there so much bad stuff? And so someone online was saying that they heard a pastor who had this conversation in a barber shop. And so the barber was like, hey, if God is so real and so good, why is there so much evil in the world? Why, when I walk outside of my doors, is there crime and this and poor people and homeless people? And the pastor tried to explain to him, but no one in the barbershop could understand what he was saying. They, they were just like, we don't get it. You're not making sense. There's still all this bad. So if God exists, why does that exist? So the pastor left, and when he got outside the barbershop, he actually saw one of the homeless people. And the guy was real disheveled, hair all grown, unshaven, all that stuff. So the pastor asked the homeless guy, hey, would you mind coming with me for a minute? And in return, I'll pay for a shave and a haircut, buy your lunch. And the homeless guy said, yeah, sure. So the, the pastor grabbed him by the hand. They walked into the barber shop. And the pastor said to the barber, hey, there must not be any barbers that exist in this city. And the barber's like, what are you talking about? I'm right here. And the pastor's like, but if there are barbers in the city, then why are there people whose hair is uncut and who aren't shaved? And, and, and the barber was like, well, hey, it's not that I'm not here. I'm here. There are barbers. He just didn't come to me. And the pastor was like, that's what's true of God. God exists for everyone who's willing to come to him. But if you choose not to, that doesn't mean he's not real. It just means you haven't come to him yet. And there's a verse in the Bible in Acts chapter 4 uh, where Peter says salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And no one can say God doesn't exist because there's evil. What they can say is, hey, there are evil people who haven't yet accepted God's salvation. Because God offers it to all who are willing to come to him, and he uses his people 
to make that known to the world. And I know it feels like we've been walking through the book of Exodus forever, um, but it was a 40-year journey for them. It won't take us as long. That was a joke. Um, I wanted to share this story with you really quick. Uh, we, Christy and I, haven't really had like vacation vacations since like last fall. So um, I don't know about her. I was getting a little bit burnt out. Um, I think she took, she took a couple of weeks ago like a long weekend, went to visit her family in Rochester. Uh, but we haven't really had time off since last fall. So a while back, we were planning, I think February, early March, we were planning this elaborate vacation. We were going to go to Arizona because we had never been there before. And she even picked out like hotels in two different cities in Arizona. So we'd, you know, stay in one city and check out that city. And then we'd go to the next city, then do a day trip to uh, the Grand Canyon. And just like, I think it was like seven or eight days. We were going to just hang out there, relax, uh, not see family, just us and, and, and kind of hang out and just relax. And all of that fell through, uh, so we're not going. <laughs> but all of that fell through because uh, of crypto. Now, I don't know how many of you know this, but uh, they used to let pets fly. I'm afraid of flying. I hate heights, afraid of heights. So I kind of, when I have him, then I don't end up, and forgive my language, but throwing up on Christy, which has happened. So I take him. And I, I'm, I'm holding him, and he's my comfort dog. But then they canceled, like, not allowing dogs to fly anymore. Now, we could have went anyway and left him with someone, but he's, like, fully dependent upon us because we kind of spoil him. Like, uh, he eats, like, better food than we do. Um, and how many of you guys have heard Christy talk about the Berkey water filters? It, it's this, like, water filtration system totally cleans the water. Right now, that's the only water he'll drink. So have you guys been, like, either downtown Pittsburgh? I don't know if they do in Elizabeth. I know in Dormont, where during the summer, they put bowls of water outside for pets, right? So when it's hot, the pets can just drink the water. We could be outside with crypto, and it could be 99 degrees or 199 degrees. He will walk up to that water, sniff it, and will not drink it unless it's Berkey water. He will, he will be panting, dying, fur matted with sweat. He will not drink a drop unless it's the Berkey filtration water because he's spoiled, and that's, that's our fault, but he's also kind of fully dependent upon us. So from a parental standpoint, right, you can understand when you have children. I think I was talking to Rachel, and she was like, yes, her children, they're dependent upon her, but when they're away from her, she has this like separation anxiety, like are they okay or whatever, because we want our children to be dependent upon us, but we want to groom them to the point where they're independent, right? But we still want them to kind of look to us for advice, and we want to make sure they're okay. So we, we want our children fully independent from us, right? And we want to raise them up so they can go out on their own, make good decisions, get good jobs, live a good life, but we still want them connected to us, right? We don't want them to totally cut us off. Uh, we still want to be able to speak into their lives, but it takes time. So when you start, when they're like Caden's age, you can hold him and feed him and all that stuff. Then it gets to the point where he can feed himself, and then it gets to the point where, like, Caden, you're grown. You're buying dinner. You got a job and a degree. You're buying dinner. It's all on you. That's way down the road, 
but it's, it's coming, right? We all want our children fully independent. We still want them to be connected to us, but it takes time. Doesn't happen overnight. So this is what God has been doing with the people of Israel. Uh, we're at the point where he's already freed them from slavery. They celebrated it. They rejoiced in it. And a couple of weeks ago, I shared where the rest of the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus and the book of uh, uh, Deuteronomy, Numbers somewhat, but Numbers is all a little bit more of here's what happened to us. All of that is about God equipping and preparing his people so that they can be independent a fully standalone nation, but still connected to him. And where they have taken the steps to where they know that they can believe and trust in and rely on God, but where they're able to do things as an independent nation by themselves. So if you have a Bible, open it up uh, to the book of Exodus chapter 15. And in the book of Exodus, or we're going to try to make it through a couple of chapters tonight. The book of Exodus, chapter 15, verse 22, uh, this is what it says. It says, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. Now, this is important that we understand where they are. This isn't like weeks later or months later. This is right after they just finished like banging the tambourines and singing and praising God because they just saw their enemies defeated. They just watched like the whole sea flood over and wash away the Egyptian army. This just happened. And then they went into the desert of Shur. For three days, they traveled into the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. Marah literally means bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Now again, now they're three days. This is three days since they just, they just saw three days ago, God literally control a whole body of water and make it stand up like tall buildings while they walk through on dry ground and then watch God bring it crashing down, cause a huge tsunami that like went up and washed all of their enemies away while they remain totally dry. This is just three days ago they saw that. It's been about six or eight weeks since the first uh, plague where God literally turned the Nile, 3,000 miles of water into blood for seven days and then turned it back. And three days into their journey, they start grumbling and complaining because they're thirsty. Verse 25 says, Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. That word sweet means pleasing, and I've heard a lot of pastors say that what happened was is that he took, Moses took a stick, if this was like a big, long stick, and threw it into this body of water that was bitter, undrinkable, and all of a sudden it became sweet or pleasing or able for them to drink. And they say that there was something on the stick that when it seeped into the water, it made the water drinkable. That's not true. What happened was God performed a miracle. Because first of all, remember, there's a million and a half people, so you need a huge body of water for a million and a half people to drink from. One little stick, one cinnamon stick, isn't gonna make that drinkable. What happened was God said, hey, I want you to do something. And when you do it, 
I'm going to perform a miracle so that you know that you can trust me. And we're going to see that over and over and over. God says, do this. And the thing that I'm asking you to do, it's not going to make sense. But the end result is that I'm going to perform a miracle so that you can trust in me. Because it would have taken, even if it was something in the stick, it would have taken a stick the size of the Liberty Bridge to fall into the river to make that entire river now drinkable. But all it takes is God saying, I'm going to make it so. So when Moses threw the stick in, God used that as a symbol, a sign, to perform a miracle to make the water drinkable. But then look what happens next. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. And he said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, from this point forward, God is going to start equipping them and preparing them so that they are, one, an independent nation, self-sustaining, but they're still connected to him, and proving that they as a nation can rely on him. So in verse 27, they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs, 12 springs and that springs of water, one for each tribe, and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. So God had already had it in his plan that I'm going to provide for you. Verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1 says, The whole Israelite community set out from Elim, and they came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Aaron. Now think about this. this is, I love when the Bible gives us a timeline because we don't know. It doesn't say it happened in this year or this year, but it gives them the timeline. So three days after, they grumbled about water. God provided water in a miraculous way. Then he led them to springs of water, one for each tribe. Again, God providing. Now, it is, uh, if, if we were estimating that in their timeline, a month is about 30 days, so on the 30 days passed, and then 15 days into the second month, so 45 days since they left Egypt, but only 42 days since God miraculously provided water for them, and then they start grumbling again, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat, and we ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, it's really important that we understand that that is a lie. And it's not that the Bible is lying. It's that, that their memory is flawed. See, in their memory, now because they're in the desert and it's hard, they're thinking, hey, we had it much better back then. But they weren't sitting in Texas Roadhouse eating lots of steak and thinking, oh, I'm full. I deserve a mint. They were slaves where they were being beaten and whipped and worked to death daily. They were hated and despised because of their race and because they were shepherds. And they didn't have pots of meat. If anything, they had scraps of meat. And here's, here's the decision, and this is, this is kind of like the decision most of us have to make. Option A, right, where, yeah, I would much rather be a slave but I know I'm getting scraps of meat regularly. I'm going to keep getting scraps of meat because they have to keep me alive to get the work done. And how many people would prefer option A to option B? I don't know what food I'm going to get, 
but I know it's going to come from God and all of his resources are available to me and I am free. Option A, I'm a slave, I'm getting beaten, I'm hated because of what I look like, because of what I do, but every now and then I get scraps because they want to keep me alive to keep me working for them. Or option B, I'm free, but I have to trust and rely on God. And most people would choose option B, but when they get in trouble, they feel like, man, I wish I had chosen option A. Because most people, even though days or weeks later, just like the Israelites, God has done miracles to prove he can sustain us, he can take care of us, he can provide for us, we always think back to, I had it so much better when I was doing it myself, even though that caused pain and misery and heartache. And hold on, I'm sorry, I just saw someone... Uh, Martha Bradford said, pray for my daughter. Her second year of being a widow, not going well. She's only 46. And I'm going to stop for a minute because I think Marty asked me to pray too uh, for something for her. And one of, the, one of the reasons why we pray, if we don't know this already, is because we know that God hears our prayers and he answers our prayers. So Martha, I want to pray for your daughter. And Marty, I want to pray for... And for, yeah, Andrew wants us to pray for Charles. So we lift up all of these prayers to you, God. We pray for Martha's daughter who's struggling. Uh, we, we pray that you would be there to sustain her. We pray for uh, the medical necessity for Marty, uh, what's going on with her. And we pray that you would guide her, guide the hands of the doctors and the wisdom and the operation and everything, and trusting it to your hands. Uh, we pray for uh, the person Andrew asked us to lift up uh, uh, and pray. Again, in all of these situations, God, we're not praying blindly. We're praying because we have seen, just like the Israelites, over and over and over again, where you have intervened, you have provided, and you have sustained your people. So we put our faith and we put our trust in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So, uh, lost track of where it is. Okay, so, uh, um, yeah, so they were slaves. They were living in. Uh, they didn't have all the, they had all the provisions now as God was providing. They didn't have them in Egypt. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, and here's the thing. I love this. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven for you. Think about that. God didn't say, I'm going to, uh, and now later he does. He has literally trillions of quail come and feeds them meat in the desert because quails are only so big and there's a million and a half people. And, you know, I know between me and Brandon Wagner, we could probably kill like 25 alone. But uh, so he brings trillions of quail in the freedom. But now he says, I'm going to, I'm going to feed you in the desert. Think about this, in the desert where other people are dying of starvation, where other people are struggling to get water, God not only provided water for them, he says, I'm going to rain down food from you from heaven, food that doesn't exist on the planet. God's like, I'm going to go all Martha Stewart up in the kitchens of heaven, create something special for you that no one has ever had before. That's how God sustains his people, right? He says, the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them. 
See whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and this is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So God provides water in the desert. He provides food not on this earth. How many people, if God actually started, just reached down and served you food from heaven would think, maybe this is a God I can trust. Maybe I can put my faith and trust in him no matter what I'm going through. Right? Uh, turn over to verse 31. And this is what it says. The people of Israel called the bread, the bread that he rained out from heaven, manna, which literally means what is it? It was like white, it was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna, keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of man in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. Again, so that every generation can see that God is able to provide for and sustain his people. I don't know about you, but like my bread goes bad in like days. And God says, I'm going to sustain this for generations so that people can see that God can provide. Right? 34, as the Lord commanded Moses and put it in front of the testimony that it might be kept, the Israelites ate manna 40 years till they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Now, there's a reason that the manna ceased. They ate manna the 40 years that they were wandering in the desert, and then Moses passes away, Joshua takes charge, uh, and we're told this, right, in Joshua chapter 5, the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover, which God had implemented in Exodus and told them, you're, you're to remember this day. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. And there's a reason the manna stopped. While they were in the desert, God was feeding them literally from the tables of heaven until they were equipped now to go and do it themselves. In the same way, like you, you, you kind of, you know, you feed your children, you start off breastfeeding or, or formula, and then you start off with, uh, you know, hand feeding, seeing the airplane going into their mouths, and then you switch to making them sandwiches, and then they're making their own sandwiches, and then they get to the point where they're making dinner because they can do it themselves. And God, the same way, now they were at the point where God's like, hey, you're ready to be an independent nation who can trust in me, but ready to stand on your own. Right? Uh, drop down to verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something, again, to be remembered. Make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory. Excuse me, I, I skipped a whole verse. Uh, in verse 10, Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went on to the top of the hill. Uh, the Amalekites were a people who were family with them, but also enemies of them. And this is one of the things God was preparing them for. If you're going to be a standalone nation, uh, yes, God will provide for you, but you have to be able to defend yourself to overcome enemies that come against you. And the Amalekites were actually like generations-long enemies. Uh, they were descendants of Esau, 
who should have been family, but instead they were feuding. In Genesis 36, it tells us Esau's son Eliphaz had a concubine named Timnah who bore him Amalek. And these were the grandsons of Esau's wife, Adah. And then later in Judges, once they got into the land, uh, they were still fighting the Amalekites. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, he came and attacked Israel. They took possession of the city of Sons. And then even once they, they were consolidated and they had a king over them, they still fought with the Amalekites. David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt until finally in Chronicles, later under King Hezekiah, they did away with almost all of them. Uh, the men whose names were listed came in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. They attacked the Hamites and their dwellings, also the Meunites who were there, and completely destroyed them as is evident to this day. Then they settled in their place because there was pasture for their flocks. And 500 of the Simeonites of the tribe of Simeon, led by Palatia, Neria, Rephiah, and Uziel, the sons of Ishi, invaded the hill country of Seir. They killed the remaining Amalekites who had escaped, and they lived there to this day. So throughout their history, they had this ongoing battle with the Amalekites. But now the Amalekites attack them while they're at Rephaim. And then later we're told that as they were traveling through the wilderness, the Amalekites would come and they would pick off those at the end, which were usually the older people who moved slow, the straggling with the kids and, and the ones who carried bundles, and they would come and they would attack their elderly and their children. And this was something that God didn't like. When they fought them here, Moses went out and he lifted up his hands to God. And every time, every time uh, his hands were lifted up, right, then the, 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 Jew, the, the Israelites were winning the battle. But when Moses' hands got tired and he put them down, they started losing the battle. And I've heard pastors say that this was a military strategy so that all of the soldiers that were fighting could look and see Moses' hands lifted up. And when they did, they fought harder. That's not true. That makes no sense. And if you've ever been in a fight, the last thing you want to do is look away to make sure somebody's cheering you on because that's how you lose the fight. But then God tells us exactly how uh, they won the fight. He says this in verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, write this on the scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from heaven Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord, and the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And God said, write this on the banner. Make sure Joshua knows this. Make sure future generations know this. It wasn't a military strategy. It was God saying, when you lift up your hands to me, then I got you. I will sustain you, and I will help you overcome whatever it is that you're facing. And all of these were God doing miracles in order to show that he could sustain and provide for the people. All of these were God doing miracles so that the people would know that they could trust and rely on God. 
as they were setting out to be an independent nation, one of the first things God wanted them to learn was that he would be there for them, that he would sustain them. And yeah, one day you're going to be an independent nation, you're going to be on your own, but every battle you come, every need that you have, God said, I'm going to be there for you. And he starts by uh, providing food in the desert, in the desert. And I don't know if you've ever been camping or, or whatever or in the, in the forest, but in the desert is a whole different environment. There are military people that train for weeks to be able to survive just a few days in the desert, and some of them don't make it because it's a harsh environment. But God was saying, I'm not only going to keep you there and sustain you, I'm going to allow you to thrive. And later we're told that this whole aspect of God providing food pointed to Jesus. It wasn't just God saying, hey, I'm going to sustain you. It was God saying, Jesus is the bread of life who will sustain us. Because when you jump to the New Testament, in John chapter 6, there are people asking Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? They had a works mentality. They were a, a, a understanding of the law. I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to do this. And Jesus is saying, that's not quite right. So they were saying, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And they're acknowledging, hey, that manna, that was given as a sign. They're saying, hey, Jesus, what sign are you going to give us that we should believe and trust you? Because God gave a sign to our ancestors that they could trust him. He fed them manna in the desert. And Jesus' response is this. Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you don't believe. Just like, just like God fed them in the desert and they still grumbled against him, Jesus said, I'm the true bread of life, but you've seen all of the miracles I've done and you still don't believe me. You're still asking for a sign. And so not only did God feed them, uh, God also provided water in the desert. One of the ways he provided water was water literally from a rock, from a rock where he told uh, Moses, hey, uh, they were grumbling. He told Moses, go up to this rock, take some of the elders so they are witnesses. And he said, I'm going to stand there by the rock. And when I do, strike the rock and water will come out. And water came flooding out. And then later, Jesus, at the, the Feast of Tabernacles, they literally had a festival in order to remember that God provided for them while they were in the desert. So in John chapter 7, on the final and most important day of the feast, it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Part of that feast, it was a seven-day feast, and one of the things that they were to do were they were to go out and build like huts and tents and booths and camp out in their backyard to remember the fact that when they were in the desert, God provided for them. 
And on the last and most important day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out in a loud voice, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And their minds immediately would have went to, well, this whole festival is about the desert. God provided water in the desert. God provided water from a rock in the desert. Are you saying that you're the rock? And that's the picture that God wanted them to get. He said, he who believes in me, who cleaves to and trusts and relies on me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being shall flow continuously springs and rivers of living water. God's saying, if you believe in me, if you put your faith and your trust in me, you won't have to worry about your food. You won't have to worry about clothing. You won't have to worry about water. But he wasn't talking about physical water. He says he was speaking of the spirit whom those who believe and trusted and had faith in him would afterward to receive. The same way that God wanted his people, the Israelites, to be able to believe and trust in him. Yeah, be independent, be able to make your own decisions. But I wanted, God wanted to equip them and, and, and sustain them so that they would be able to trust in him. So he did miracle after miracle after miracle. And Jesus offers the same thing to us. And then Jesus even takes it a step further because we're all familiar with the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer, yes, it's how we should pray, but it's also a reminder of God's ability to provide and sustain us and provide for us. And all of these were signs that we can rely on God. And here's what he says in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to close out with this. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him, which is how God is able to sustain us. He said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Acknowledging, hey, it's your domain, your kingdom, and we want to see your will done just as we do on earth. And every line after that is trusting that God will provide Give us today our daily bread, which is exactly what God had to do for his people in the desert every day, literally fed them food from heaven. And what we're supposed to do every day is go out and believe and trust that God can provide for us. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Forgiving people uh, is, is one of the things that we're called to do. doesn't matter what they believe. doesn't matter if they hate us. doesn't matter if they think like us or vote like us. We're supposed to forgive people the way that God has forgiven us. We're supposed to tell people that there is a God who does forgive. And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. One of the things that God made crystal clear to the people of Israel, but they didn't get, was no matter what you are going through, God can provide. It doesn't matter if you're in the desert. It doesn't matter if you're in the city. It doesn't matter if you're hungry. It doesn't matter if you need food. It doesn't matter if you need healing. It doesn't matter if you need water. Whatever you need, God will provide. And God tells the same thing to his people today. And says the same thing to us. Because at one point, the people grumbled against God. And Moses said, why do you put God to the test? And the word he used for test is a word that literally means, why do you ask God to prove himself over and over and over again? 
And it's the same thing that we do when we get, we're, we're, we're great when things are going great, but when we get in a struggle, when we get in a hurdle, when we need God to show up, sometimes we tend to forget and think that God cannot provide, and we tend to want to rely on ourselves and think we have to do it on our own. But we serve a God who's able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or imagine, whether it be medically, whether it be physically, whether it be financially, and all he asks is that we trust him. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. God, we thank you so much that not only did you provide for your people food and water in a place where none was available, but you provide for your people today whatever it is that they need. And we know that we have come to you in the past asking for healing, and you have done it. We know that we have come to you in the past asking for financial assistance, and you have provided. We know that we've come to you in the past asking for all sorts of things, and every single time you have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can sustain your people. So our prayer this morning is that whatever we have on our hearts, some of us may have uh, emotional needs, uh, mental needs, physical needs, whatever it is, it's not a matter of will we ask you for it. It's a matter of will we trust that you can provide it. And we pray, as the, as the one man said, Lord, where we have no faith, increase our faith in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.